Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome to the NASCAR NBC Podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan, and in the offices today at Stuart Haas Racing of the man whose name is on the title, Gene Haas, here to talk to Kurt Busch, who is, of course, the defending winner of the Daytona 500, which is why he's here. Kurt, thanks for being here. Absolutely, Nate. Thanks for coming by, and uh, it's always good to you know get media week underway, and I was looking forward to seeing you, because this is my last stop. <laughs> <laughs> this is it. This is it, and then uh, we'll, we'll be out in Vegas testing next week with our NASCAR car. Okay, and you're also headed out there to do some Supercross work as well. I want to talk to you about that, but I want to start, Kurt, with Daytona's right around the corner. When you think back to last year, I mean, what's the first thing that pops in your head about winning the Daytona 500? Uh, in all honesty, it was the teamwork and the switchover that we had to go through at Stuart Haas to transition over to Ford and to work with Doug Yates again, I just had the utmost confidence that everything was going to work out. And I kept hearing Kevin Harvick uh, a bit apprehensive and kept saying there's going to be bugs to work out and we're going to have these issues, there's going to be growing pains. And I just, in all honesty, kept believing positive, power, powerful thoughts a lot of that came from my wife, Ashley, and the way that she approaches life. And that's why her and I get along so well is because I had so much to learn <laughs> from her in that, as- in that aspect. And, and when we, we got to Daytona, the car wasn't quite as fast as what I had hoped, uh, especially in the qualifying race. It just didn't have that feel. And we went to work as hard as we could on that Friday and Saturday and in the race Sunday. That, that whole teamwork aspect of it and my job to drive, I could just feel it. All areas were finally clicking by that Sunday afternoon. And uh, pulling into victory lane, it was insane. I mean, Ford's there, Monster, Tony Stewart, Gene Haas. I mean, that, I couldn't have scripted a, a better way to celebrate because everybody was there. Even my, my father-in-law, he even brought his boat, and we're all hanging out at the chart house, <laughs> and that's where we partied afterwards. I mean, it felt like a true... Hollywood type story. Ashley is from Florida and or has roots there, family roots there. Yeah, I mean, she's from Virginia, uh, uh-huh. the west side of D.C. And then they go down to Florida for the weather, uh, mm-hmm. boating, and her polo season. And so Ashley really enjoys the Florida weather down there. She, we can all just laugh and giggle. She doesn't do well below seventy degrees. <laughs> <laughs> Tony was in victory lane, and the Daytona Five Hundred was a race that Smoke, of course, didn't win and came agonizingly close many times. I think afterward, he kind of talked about almost living vicariously through you, and that felt like obviously his team won the race, even though he wasn't behind the wheel. Did you feel as if you delivered something to a three-time NASCAR champion that maybe he hadn't really ever gotten to enjoy, but you helped him get there? It really felt uh, unique to have that hug. He was like, I think, the third guy I saw 
um, once I got out of the car. And when we had that embrace and that, that moment of owner, driver, but also the two of us challenged each other over the last two decades to try to win that race. And when we were taking pictures and doing the hat dance, they came over with the, the Daytona 500 rings. And usually there's one for owner, one for the crew chief, and one for the driver. And that's it. Those are the three rings. And when they handed them off, well, there's two owners here. There's Gene Haas and Tony Stewart. I just felt compelled to give mine to Tony. And so Gene has his, Tony Stewart has his, Tony Gibson has his ring. And I, I just remember that moment on, thanks for the help, but here's the ring. I want you to have this. And he can wear it proudly and say that he's the owner, but he can, yeah, live vicariously through me on how he helped steer that car to victory. Had you heard Smoke talk before about what it meant that he hadn't gotten that elusive win in that race? It's tough for him. Uh, yeah. And any of the big veterans, you know, like Rusty Wallace never won Daytona, Mark right. Martin, uh, the Labonte brothers. There's a pretty stout list of guys that hadn't won. And my name was on that list for 17 years with a lot of third place or second place finishes. Mm -hmm. So I was happy to break through finally. So you mentioned that the party went to the chart house. I think it's appropriate that we're talking here the Super Bowl almost upon us a week later because I think you had a certain New England Patriots tight end, Rob Gronkowski, a monster athlete who was joining in in some of that celebration. What was the aftermath like after you guys left the track? Yeah, I mean, to have Gronk in victory lane and we had 20 monster girls, all of the monster executives, all of the Ford executives, and there's Gene, and Gene's doing his normal thing like, yeah. Look at this. We've won Indy. We've won championships. Now we've won Daytona. We're done. We we're just we're, we got them all. And I'm like, Gene, we're just starting. Uh, but then with Gronk and Victory Lane, it's um, it's a it just helped spark the party. And then with Monster Energy signing the entitlement sponsorship, and for me to deliver, it was like I was protecting my turf to show them that the car is valuable. That the Having that dog in the fight is important for um, the brand to be able to root that person on, that team on, when they bring in their different uh, wholesalers, distributors, and guests that come in of Monster Energy. So mm -hmm. with Gronk, yeah, we, we actually bounced around. He, I ended up bump, bumping into him over at Razzles, which scale of 1 to 10 as far as a nightclub, let's give it a 2. <laughs> Uh, then, yeah, over on the boat with my father-in-law and his friends, which is, uh, you know, a 10 on a scale of 1 to 10. And then I thought there was one other spot. And then the PR guy's like, okay, you know, 6.15, you got to be uh, downstairs, and we're on radio at 7 a.m. I'm like, who the hell scheduled that? <laughs> but it's part of the tradition of getting on radio and then pushing the car into the museum at Daytona. Yeah, that Daytona 500 winner's breakfast comes probably too early for every person who's yeah, ever won that race. For sure. <laughs> so you mentioned that list of guys who didn't win this race, Kurt, and you're lucky enough to not only have Daytona 500 champion on your resume, but obviously since November 2004, you've also had Cup Series champion on your resume. What do you like hearing more when you get introduced now? Do you still prefer, because you've heard it for so long, Cup champion, or is Daytona 500 champion a nice wrinkle to that introduction as well? It's an amazing type of feeling with both. And um, I just, I'm blessed to be in the position that I'm in with great race teams and to have won two iconic, uh, powerful events in our sport, both with Ford 
the way that I can now draw a, 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 a symmetry type feeling around the whole situation, it's almost like the Golden Gate Bridge. There's that cable that leads up to the first anchor point, and then there's the, the cables in between, and then there's the other side of the bridge with that big pylon. Winning a championship and winning the Daytona 500 are like bookends in my career. And there was a lot that was done before I won that first championship. But it feels like that's the cable on the back side of the bridge heading over the bay. And that's the way that my, my career is, is shaping up. And so it's an amazing feeling to have those, those two big iconic moments. Uh, still missing out on the Southern 500. That is, to me, more important to win there than it is Indianapolis. And I haven't won there. Uh, but to have, you know, the Bristol night race and a Bristol sweep, the Coke 600, the all-star race, um, you know, to win a qualifying race at Daytona, to win the clash. Those are all the cool check marks that um, I've been able to put together with all these race teams over the years. This is going to be your 18th full season in cup. Does that weigh on you a little bit more of, Hey, I've got to tick these boxes before it's over. Having two of the four crown jewel races, I guess now Coke 600, Daytona 500, it means a little more to get Southern 500 in the brickyard. Yeah. I hope that I'm able to, to piece that together. That's my motivation. Um, and it's funny. I had a goal when I first started out in racing and Mark Martin was a guy I looked up to when I was at Roush. And at the time, he had right around 33 wins. And I said, you know, if I could get to that type of quality win count and consistency, that would be my ideal career. Mm -hmm. And I'm at 29, so I'm just shy of it. And that's that motivation that keeps me going. Do you think Hall of Fame at all? I don't. Yeah. Um, to me, that's, that's a, meant for, for a voting panel or for... Um, others to to create that symbolic uh, en enshrinement. And mm -hmm. so that'll just come over time if it does happen. But 30 wins, Daytona 500, and championship, that's pretty sterling credentials. That's probably going to get you over the hump, right? I hope, but uh, to me, it's, it's not a given. And you have to always go out there and perform and to create that legacy with, with, the, with the drive and the passion and the humility. So you mentioned Vegas. And you're going out there for the test. And also, you're going to be doing some TV work, I know, with the Supercross race. And I know that X Games are also on the horizon. Tell us a little bit about that. Why branching out this year? And I know you also signed with an agency in the offseason. What's the direction there for you? For me, it's about having fun outside of NASCAR and being in this sport for so long. Uh, you end up with a PhD in TV and radio uh, because of how you have to carry yourself and what you have to get done, um, how you hold your body as far as... Uh, it's it's body language. To me, um, just having fun with my sponsor as well, with Monster Energy. Uh, they're involved heavily with Supercross. Uh, they're up there in Aspen for the X Games, and that's on ESPN. And so there's a lot of guys in our NASCAR world that are going into the NASCAR booth. There's other opportunities, though. And for me, I've always liked adventure, and I'm a sports guy. And so this will be fun to you know, get with Ralph Shaheen and be in the booth calling some races with Supercross and then to go up to the X Games and hang out with some of the monster athletes that aren't in uh, the motorsports world. Um, that just is my fandom of sports coming out. Is TV work something you might be interested in then long term? Yeah, it, it could come into play um, and I have to get my feet wet and see how I feel with it. And, you know, I just don't want to commit to, you know, a contract and then not uh, not feel the vibe with it. Uh, for me, if I'm going to jump into something, I want to make sure it's comfortable. 
and kind of work my way up. And that's what ICM and Lou Oppenheimer are going to help me do with, with his agency. You don't have just NASCAR on your resume. Obviously, if there's someone who might be well-attuned to, to talk about a diverse landscape in motorsports, I mean, you've got Indy 500 start, you've got the NHRA start, uh, you ran the Rolex race. D- does that broad, diverse background, do you think, help you when you go into a booth for a Supercross race? I hope that it does. I, I think it just shows that I, I can be a jack-of-all-trades, uh, even running a, a rally car in Italy in a race against uh, Valentino Rossi a few years ago. Forgot about that one. <laughs> running with Ken Block. Uh, it, sure. It, it was an amazing feeling, too, to just to race at Monza and to be at that track for a race. Uh, those are the other things that motivate me to do some fun things and race at different uh, iconic tracks and iconic races in the future. You know, like the 24 Hours of Le Mans is on the checklist. and. Really? 24 hours of Nürburgring, you know, run around that 13-mile loop. Lots of fun to be had still. Have you talked to Ford about maybe Le Mans? Oh, gosh, I've been wearing them out every day. (laughs) 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 Yep, you know, it's it's just having them. It's just having options out there. When we talk about guys like Kyle Larson and others who do dirt racing in their spare time, obviously you're not dirt racing, but you've got all these other disciplines that you participate in. Do you view yourself the same way as like a true racer, as I know some of these guys who race dirt and stock cars like to refer themselves as? Yeah, I feel like um, anytime there's an opportunity to to race for a trophy or to to have fun um, and to do it with the right approach uh, that's that's what I like to commit to the you have to stay focused though on the, the 40 races a year that we do in NASCAR and not get too distracted because uh, that's that's the number one job is to go out there and perform and to get the the NASCAR wins you mentioned Ashley your wife and her polo career how many polo matches Miss Kurt Busch attended over, oh, the, gosh. over the off season. I've, I've been, um, you know, over the years with her, probably been to at least two dozen of them. And she's had three games this off season and made it to the finals of this, uh, this first tournament that she's in. And so that's next Friday. I'll be on a, a red eye flight back from Vegas, the test session to watch her play. And so I love it because I'm over there writing down different stats and keeping track of things and, her team just laughs at me because I'm keeping track of numbers that they've never even heard of. They're like, shots on goal? Why are you keeping track of that? I'm like, Time of possession. These are things they're not even worried about. I'm like, guys, these are stats, though, like in hockey, that translate to wins. And so I feel like I'm trying to take that team to the next level, but I'm just really their biggest cheerleader. <laughs> so you become like their analytics yeah. expert for Yeah, they're looking team. at me all cross-eyed at first, <laughs> and now, now I think they're starting to get it. <laughs> You told me when we talked uh, before the playoffs last year that you had just bought Ashley, I think, a, a Ford Dually transport the horses around that she plays on. Is that is that right? And it felt a little bit like your your late model days. Yeah, their truck was getting a little old, and so <laughs> yeah, we had to to upgrade the Dually. And absolutely, it uh, it reminds me of when I was late model racing and going from place to place with the Dually, uh, towing the trailer, uh, running late nights to get from point A to point B to um, race again. And they do the same thing with, with their horses. As game might be here one day, game might be over there the next day. Uh, you have the volunteer help as well as some of the, the help that's that's there all the time. It, it reminds me of, of those days 100%. Hmm. What are uh, some of your best memories from the, the Southwest tour when you were on the road all the time? Like uh, My favorite was the road trip from Vegas to Colorado National Speedway and driving up through the Rockies. Uh, that was a 12-hour road trip, um, and we'd always try to leave by 6 a.m. 
so we get there by 6 p.m. and go to dinner. The trips to Tucson Raceway Park for the Winter Heat Series. You know, the Winter Heat back then was like the Daytona 500 for Southwest Tour Racing and also the, the chance to race at Sonoma, uh, you know, going onto that big stage there and the chance to race at uh, Phoenix International Raceway and Vegas, uh, the big track. Those were the, the big moments in Southwest Tour, and I was always ready for those big races. I loved it. Did I hear that there's a story about you jumping a fence because you didn't have the money for a pit pass? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, check this one out. So I'm in college down in Tucson. Um, I'm beginning to struggle with my grades. Reason being, the books were literally on the back seat because I'd throw the books on the back seat of my Volkswagen Bug and head to the racetrack. Uh, so whether I was meeting my dad at Lake Havasu Speedway or Blythe, um, you know, volunteering on a late model team in Tucson or this Southwest Tour team that I ended up racing for, they were out of Vegas. And the next race that I went with $35 in my pocket and they were in LA. So when I started to drive, I didn't really put two and two together that my college campus food card wouldn't work outside of uh, outside of campus so i got halfway and i'm like i only have 35 dollars. i'm out in the real world i didn't have a credit card i only had the college campus credit card and so it takes 10 bucks to fill up my volkswagen bug to get back so now i'm down to 25 bucks i get to the track and go to the sign-in window here's where the issue came up if you were a member of that track, a pit pass was 20 bucks. If you were a non-member, it was 30. So I'd be negative five <laughs> if I had to pay for a pit pass, literally. And then this is before, you know, with texting or calling anybody. And I, I just was a volunteer on that team. I didn't really have anybody's phone number. I had to kind of park my car around the corner <laughs> and go jump the fence real quick and then run to that team and get a crew uniform to put on just so that it looked like I had a pit pass <laughs> with that crew uniform shirt on. And that's how I saved 25 bucks, 30 bucks to get back home. So nobody was checking pit passes, thankfully, that night. But that, <laughs> that literally was how much passion and drive I had to succeed in motorsports. It was down to my last few bucks. I couldn't call home uh, because they were like, no more money. You know, you got to finish school uh, with that cash and with uh, the a campus credit card and I think they were trying to imply that I didn't need to be goofing off and going to all these races is what that meant <laughs> what did you do on the team that night what did you help them out with I was just volunteering um, and when you do that you just jack of all trades do tires uh, work on shocks um, help them with the scales tech inspection I'd always have the headset to uh, just listen into the spotter and the driver communication and this is when you were at Arizona that's when I was a, a wildcat at University of Arizona and that was the um, the star nursery uh, Southwest Tour late model team. Did you also go to UNLV? I did. I took some some credits when I came back to Vegas, and that's when I was racing with that Star Nursery team. They, they called me to, to drive their car. During the offseason, you had a chance to actually watch both of your pseudo quasi alma maters. I guess they would be play a basketball game, Arizona UNLV playing in Vegas when you were out there. Yeah, it was perfect. It was banquet weekend. Um, we had the banquet on a Thursday this year, and then Arizona was at UNLV um, that Saturday night. And so I was going there to that game, and I was a winner already. <laughs> UNLV, if they won or if Arizona won, that's great. But it was so cool. Uh, game went into overtime. 
and Arizona squeaked it out at the end. Have you ever kind of contemplated like what your life would have been like if you would have followed maybe a more normal <laughs> type path through graduation and a career? Yeah, I felt like, um, you know, in my late teens, mom was uh, really focused on making sure I did my schoolwork first and went out to, you know, set out to get a degree in something. And then uh, racing would be a hobby. That's really the objective I had was to, you know, ha have the stability with a job and then to earn just enough money to be able to race a late model and maybe travel around a little bit. And that was what was going to be uh, the path in life. When I got the chance to run for that late model team, I won in my uh, fifth ever race with those guys at Las Vegas Motor Speedway, the little bull ring. And then when we really started hitting our groove, I won at Sonoma. And then we won four races straight um, at Madera, Tucson, Bakersfield, and Irwindale. When we went on that stretch run and won the championship, that's when my phone was ringing from some 704 numbers instead of just the 702 numbers from Nevada. And that's when I knew things were starting to change. College was no longer probably going to be a reality for Yes, you. I, I was, was actually relieved that it was headed that direction. <laughs> so that took you, obviously, to big-time NASCAR racing. You're here now at Stuart Haas. During the re-signing with Stuart Haas, there was no sense of you weren't going to be back. You always had a good feeling, even though it took a little bit longer probably than you would have liked. Yeah, I think it was um, like a chess game in, in a certain way to... The team wanted to get things done their way. I wanted to get things done my way, and we just had to give and take. The two sides always agreed that we were going to work it out. Um, I just had some objectives that I was really firm about, and <laughs> one of them, jokingly, was the ability to, to have that Daytona 500 winning car. Really? Yeah, that was one of my number one objectives. You know, and they're so like, when they release that thing next month, you're getting it. I hope. That's what I wanted. And they're like, yeah. no, no, we're going to keep it. And I'm like, well, can I have visitation rights with it? <laughs> <laughs> so I, literally, that was a sticking point for a while. And we worked it all out. At the end of the day, I was hopeful to have a long-term contract because with Ford, I know that there's more on the horizon with the new car that they're designing right now. And I want to be part of that because over the years, I've won with Ford. I've won with Dodge. I've won with Chevrolet. Even have one win with a Toyota with Kyle Busch Motorsports in the Xfinity Series. Uh, Ford has always felt like family, and that's always felt like home. And I still feel like there's more to do with Ford racing. And does that mean beyond NASCAR, meaning sports cars? Yeah, I mean, NASCAR is my priority. But yes, Ford is involved in a lot of different forms of motorsport. We'll see how it all shakes up. But yeah, that, that Ford GT is pretty sexy. And I want to be in that thing for a ride at, at Le Mans one year. It's an amazing car. And it comes from that legacy and that lineage that Ford had put together back in the 60s uh, when they did go out and challenge Ferrari to win that, uh, that 24 hours of Le Mans with that car they built. And I was lucky enough from Etzel Ford to get a 2005 uh, Ford GT as a gift for winning the championship, you know, the year before that. And I've been told verbally I'm on the list for a new Ford GT. That's just verbal <laughs> now. Yeah, I got to figure out how to get that under contract. And it, it's just amazing to be part of Ford's legacy and to be able to give back to a manufacturer that has given me so much. I can't wait to, to, to have more Fords and stack the garage full. And my dad has seven 1932 Fords. 
So he's he's just a fanatical Ford fan, just like I am. Kurt, when you look at current landscape in NASCAR, I was looking back doing some research for this, and Roush Fenway, 13 years ago, that time just Roush, Roush Racing, five guys, you're the only one who's left. And Carl Edwards, Mark Martin, Matt Kenseth, Greg Biffle, all gone. What do you think of when you look at that as, again, somebody who's entering his 18th year in NASCAR's Premier Series? There must be a lot of things that have changed. What it really starts to tell me is that, um, you know, I've been fortunate to have such a a long run in the sport, but also to realize that, man, I did get in when I was young. Uh, I was 22 years old when I ran my first cup start at, at Dover. Now I'm seeing all the kids come in, they're 19, they're 20, and you know, Joey Logano was a really young driver when he first came in. It makes me realize, man, I did get a nice opportunity when I was really young to come in and take over the 97 car from, from Chad Little, and yet I'm not even 40 yet. It still tells me that there's more to do, there's more in the tank, but I've, I've got a, a definitely a, a blessed history of getting a start at such a young age. 40 is this year, correct? Yeah, 40 is this year. Yeah, okay. thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had thanks, to remind man. you. Yeah. Well, part of the reason for that is that there's a lot of statistical evidence that drivers hit their prime at age 39. So nice, good number. That's got to be good for you going <laughs> yeah. into the 2018 season. It is, um, but you have to continue to adapt. And when you get stuck in certain patterns and they're not relevant to the changes of the sport, that's when you get behind. And so you got to adapt to the changing tire characteristics, the aero, and uh, the balance of how you drive the cars in the, uh, the stage racing now. You know, it used to be a nice pace the first half of the race, and then you would start to really pour it on to get towards the end of the race. Now you got to go from lap one to lap 500. Is that one of the biggest changes you've seen since 2001 to now in terms of what's different? Absolutely, especially uh, this past year with all the stages. Uh, and how you gain the bonus points and work your way towards a title. Um, you know, Truex and those guys on the 78 car, they literally had so many bonus points by July Daytona. I told everybody, I was like, they're going to Homestead and they're guaranteed a spot. And it's like, man, they're going to polish up on that one car they're going to bring down there. And then I heard they spent two months building that one car because they knew they were almost guaranteed a spot. That's kind of how you did it the it's, first year with uh, the 2004 championship. You guys saved all your test sessions for those final 10 races, and it paid off. Yes, that's uh, exactly what our, our strategy was. Uh, Jimmy Fenning and I had a plan, and we were stressing a little bit. August, September, um, that's when only 10 guys got in the playoffs, and we fell all the way to 7th. And we had to literally finish, I think, 30th or better at Richmond to get in. And that's doable every day. But, man, if you had a flat tire, an engine failure, we were going to miss the playoffs. But we still had six tests left. And we were going to go through the playoffs racing each week and testing each week. And we tested at tracks that we knew that were, were our weak race tracks. And we approached the playoffs then just like Dale Sr. won a lot of his seven championships, um, and this was before Jimmy Johnson went on his stretch run, if you go out there and you finish seventh with the group of the playoff drivers, you're going to come out on top. And that's what our goal was to do. New crew chief this year with Billy Scott, new contract, one-year deal. What's the vibe going into 2018? I You said, Kurt, that you've spent a lot of time with getting to know Billy and being around the shop up here the last month or so. Where do things stand into this year of Stewart House Racing? Uh, to go hard, to go quick, and to go aggressive at the beginning of the season, to get our points established, 
to try to get the, that win or those wins and to cure the, the growing pains and the, the early portion of the season just to get past that and to move into the once we clear that West Coast swing, we hope we're all, you know, we're running at 100%. Is there any, I don't know if pressure is the right word, but knowing that you're not set yet beyond 2018 and knowing that monster situation affected your contract last year and probably will be a factor this year, is there more expectations, I guess, to get off to a good start to show everybody that, hey, let's just put this to bed and get it done early this year? That's what always, in my mind, ultimately uh, writes the, the signature on the contracts is performance. And so if we come out of the box strong and win Daytona again, or we're cranking out top fives, that shows that 2019 and 2020 and the beyond should come together quicker. So if we come out of the box stumbling and, and tripping, that's going to create the question of what should be done in the future. So there is a little bit more, I don't know if it's pressure then, yeah. but just you guys got to get it done. Quick. Yep. To me, yeah. that's what I like. And when you're, your back's up against the wall and the, the future isn't uh, guaranteed, you got to go hard. All right, man. Well, I appreciate you uh, taking some time here and speaking with us. No, thank you. And uh, it's been a pleasure. Media Week's been great. Uh, there's been a lot of good respect, um, even though it's like a, a big youth movement. And my favorite question was, well, which one of these young guys, you know, is your pick to do the best? And I'm like, I don't know. There's like 50 of them. So it's hard to pick which new guy is going to be the best. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's great to uh, be the guy that's got the most starts that's currently active. And it's, it's unique having that role. Experience still counts for something, right? I think I saw recently that you are the only active driver to have raced against two seven-time champions in Jimmy Johnson and Dale Earnhardt. Yeah, I just missed the Richard Petty era, too. Man, it's, I am old. No, <laughs> no it's great. I'm going to launch uh, on my social media when we head down towards Daytona uh, a video clip of Dale Sr. flipping me off. <laughs> I, I do have that video. I never got to talk to him about it. It's amazing. Some of my old picks of racing in, in 01 are literally the old school film. They weren't on a, on an SD card or they weren't digital. It was old school film. How many of these young guys even know what film is? <laughs> right. That was certainly one of the signature moments of your rookie season was that first race and having that moment with the Intimidator. True that. That's true cool. that. It's been fun, but uh, a lot of more um, fun to be had, a lot more excitement ahead. So thank you. Thanks, Kurt. Appreciate it. All right, buddy. Thanks again to Kurt Busch for sitting down with us. Again, we taped that in Gene Haas's office at Stuart Haas Racing during Media Week in mid-January. Thanks to Joe Crowley of True Speed Communications for handling the logistics. One addendum to this conversation, and I wrote about this yesterday on NBCSports.com NASCAR if you want to read the story. Kurt Busch actually didn't get the 2017 Daytona 500 winning car that he had lobbied to take delivery on from his team. He told us this past weekend that car is earmarked for the Stuart Haas Racing front lobby once it gets rolled out of Daytona's display this coming Monday. So maybe if there are more contract talks this season, Kurt can negotiate for getting it back again. More podcasts upcoming from Speed Weeks. I'll be recording soon with a former multi-time series champion, yet to be named because I'm not going to jinx it. Be on the lookout for that next week, hopefully. And then also hope to have NBC Sports colleagues Dustin Long and Steve Letarte on the podcast for episodes this week as we preview and break down the 60th running of the Daytona 500. Dustin and I will have daily coverage from Daytona at NBCSports.com NASCAR. If you're hearing this via Apple Podcasts and don't mind leaving a rating or review, that really helps us out. 
And many thanks to all of you who left the ratings after my shameless plea a couple of weeks ago. Again, that's a huge boost for the podcast. And if you don't feel like leaving a rating review, if you can just tell somebody that you like what you're hearing, get more people to subscribe, that just really helps us out, the word of mouth. We're available wherever you get your podcasts as well. So check us out on Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play. You can find us virtually anywhere. And if you have feedback, you can find me on Twitter at Nate Ryan. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR and NBC podcast. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.